From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous, tremendous, how many syllables can I make that word? A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Father, did you ever teach English in your... Uh, no, Latin. Okay, well, <laughs> English teachers around the world are cringing. Uh, if you'd yeah. like to be part of the program today, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 271 And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 271 you can always uh, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com, or you can text your question, text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky. Actually, your call screener today is Charles Beery. We have a celebrity call screener today, and if you... Um, our social media maven is Jeff Burson. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, um, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. Um, our host, as he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? It's fine, thank you. Um, you're gonna you're gonna chat with us a little bit about the the beginning of the season of Lent here. Exactly. And coming to you from St. Timothy's Church in Chantilly, Virginia. So, I'll, I'll spare you my big bopper oh, impersonation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, today you hear his voice, hard not your hearts. We use that a lot during Lent. And it's a text of scripture, obviously. And the question is, what hardens our hearts? We have a lot of examples even more so than usual in at least our country in the last two years, on various levels in various places of hardness of heart. And the hardness of heart refers to a heart which really isn't living and active. In religious terms, this means one that is without charity. So in the season of Lent, we're first of all called back the original sin, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And all of us, in the at least that have been baptized, have been cleansed from the original sin. But the trouble is we still have several areas in our lives into which we have a tendency to not allow the charity of Christ we received in baptism, the grace we received in baptism, to influence our souls on a daily basis. Traditionally, they're known as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
In the Old Testament, when the revelation of God began to prepare us for freedom from this and this original sin, there were three basic penances against hardness of heart in these areas, fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. And in the gospel for Ash Wednesday, the Lord takes up these three areas in the Sermon on the Mount. Because he doesn't condemn fasting or prayer or almsgiving, they're good. But he gives them their spiritual meaning or their spiritual significance. Namely, they have to lead us to soften our hearts, to love God for a right intention. And that's why he talks about people who ostentatiously blow the trumpet before them when they give alms, or people who stand on the street corners just to be seen, or you have, um, uh, you know, fast just so people will admire them, basically. Those are all wrong motives for this. The motive which is necessary in the New Testament, because the New Testament does justify us, the New Testament is the Holy Spirit present in the heart of the Holy Christian, is heart, is um, the love of God in the Holy Spirit dwelling in our souls. Now, we've all received this, but perhaps it has grown cold in the last year. And so to prepare ourselves for Easter, the church thoughtfully presents us this season of 40 days where we're supposed to, in the face of our winter of discontent, of our hardness of heart, begin by our Lenten practices to experience a thaw and then to experience a springtime of the Spirit. It's important to remember, and unfortunately, it's true of every human endeavor, in Lent, often people get so stuck in worrying about the jot and tittle of the Lenten practices that they're not aware or they forget or they don't have their eye on the ball when it comes to the depth of their souls changing. For example, there are many people who come to church on Ash Wednesday, but they don't come the rest of the year. Now, the ashes are great. They're a sign of our desire for repentance. But if, in fact, we don't repent... They're an empty sign. And if we did repent, we begin to take more seriously the practice of our religion, especially our union with God in the Holy Eucharist. In other words, coming to Mass. A similar thing is true of fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. They're very good to rid ourselves of our inordinate desires for pleasure or for recognition or anything that might be uh, out of the ordinary in the sense of uh, exaggerated, but without the interior motivation, they're just empty shells. So during the season of Lent in which the church offers us this wonderful time to take stock every year, let us remember that the whole purpose of Lent is fulfilled in Easter and that the resurrection of the dead is the primary source of our experiencing softness of heart or rediscovering our human heart, which is the same as the sacred heart of Jesus. And as we go about our Lenten practices, let us remember not to get so stuck in the external, whether I did this or this or this or this for this instant or whatever, but to give ourselves wholly and completely to our Lord. I've known people who, you know, they give up things for Lent, that's very good, but they don't realize that on Sunday that doesn't apply. 
<laughs> because Sunday's the day of the Lord. So you, if you're if you've given up eating sweets, you can eat them on Sunday or on the Feast of Annunciation or something like that, because they're so uh, fixated on this penance that they don't realize that it should be a penance which is oriented toward joy. If today, therefore, you hear his heart, a voice, speaking in your souls, do not harden your hearts toward the grace of Christ, but instead open your hearts constantly more deeply to him so that he can transform you. Remember, man, that you are dust, that to dust you will return. That's true if all you are is stuck with the original sin. But when you've been redeemed and you're trying to experience the fullness of that grace, these areas of life which keep us from doing this, what's traditionally called concupiscence, these need to be addressed. So, during this Lent, I hope you'll have a Lent of an ending joy and give yourselves more completely to our Lord. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We're going to take a phone call here. If, uh, we've got a caller, uh, Gary, in Long Island, New York, who has to duck away, so I want to get his question in, listening on Sirius XM 130. Gary, you're on with Father Brian. What's your question? Hello. Can you hear me okay? Uh, Just fine. So, uh, of all the talk of uh, the priest that... Uh, said a wrong word, and all his baptism, baptisms are invalid. My question is, I went through the RCIA many years ago, and they honored the baptismal certificate I had, which was done in a non-denominational church. So, two-part question, uh, why does the church honor that? Why didn't they make me get rebaptized by a priest? And how do I know if that minister used incorrect words? I have no reason to suspect he did. But I just started thinking about it after hearing about what happened. Well, as to the latter question, I don't know the answer because I wasn't there, nor and you probably didn't remember if you were baptized as an infant. But as to the former question, the issue isn't the priest. Anybody can baptize someone. But they have to use the correct words our Lord used. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy, and Holy Spirit. And we've had a lot of people today who haven't used the correct words. The I is an issue, and also it has to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks very much. We appreciate the phone call, Gary, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. You know, Mother Angelica was always fond of keeping yourself surrounded by holy reminders. We've got a beautiful item from EWTN's religious catalog, The Holy Face of Jesus. It's a shroud of Turin wood plaque. 
And the Shroud of Turin plaque features a beautifully a beautiful reproduction of the holy face of Jesus as it appears on the photo negative of the Shroud of Turin. It's printed on a thick wood plaque with a glossy finish and finished with beveled black edges. The plaque is 5 inches by 7 inches and has a drilled keyhole in the back for hanging and optional wooden peg feet for freestanding as an easel. And that's available, as I said, at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping of online orders of $75 or more. That is standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. And use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. First up today is Rose in Kalamazoo, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Rose, you are on with Father Brian Mullady. Hello, Father. Hi. Um, Father, I have a question for you. Um, My niece is getting married in May. Um, She's a cradle Catholic, has gone through, you know, um, elementary and high school um, in the Catholic um, school. However, she is choosing not to get married in the Catholic Church. And I think her fiancé is Catholic, but a non-practicing Catholic. Is that a wedding that a Catholic can attend? Uh, so uh, I didn't miss the bit of it. She's not getting married in the church. Is that what you're saying? Yes. All right. I, I would say not. Uh, now, of course, if you want, especially if it's your niece, um, there are people who believe, uh, I have no judgment to make about this, that if you wanted to, you know, show peace in the family and approval of the person, not the uh, ritual, which you don't believe in, I assume, is marriage, uh, that you could go to the reception. Other priests or moralists who are more strict say that even that's too much approval. But the ceremony itself, if you go there and you stand there, you're basically saying that you agree with what's going on. So I would uh, not do it. Of course, as a priest, I wouldn't do it at all. But um, as a lay person, especially, again, if it were my niece, uh, not my daughter, I wouldn't do it. Does that help, Rose? Um, it does help, but I have a, a second part of that sure. um, question. Um, there are some people in the family that are saying because she's being married by a minister, um, we can attend that, that the church recognizes that as a, a marriage. Is that the case? No, the church only recognizes that for Protestants. But for Bat, because their denomination recognizes that as Christian marriage. Our, our church does not. And as a result, there's no marriage. Um, if you're dealing with two ba- one or two baptized Catholics, they must be married before a priest. Thanks, Rose. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Wide open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your phone calls here on Open Line Thursday. Um, John would like to know, how should we approach almsgiving during Lent? Should we just give to whomever asks us? Is it wrong to want to be discerning when giving? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I would say, no, it's not wrong to be discerning when giving. You'd hardly want to you know, are giving alms to someone who, A, doesn't need it, number one, is put, 
you know, Chichu, number two, or uh, is going to use it for drugs uh, or whatever. I mean, the, the best way to approach it is to find some organization that you trust that will give these to the correct people. And I know that some people like to be St. Francis and we're not living in the Middle Ages and not everybody is needy or even wants our help. I knew we had a priest, I remember my order, who used to feel very guilty. He was into kind of a kind of liberal guilt. And one day he was at a post office and there was a man there and it was very cold. And so he took off his coat, gave it to the man, and the man threw it back at him and said, I want your coat. (laughs) I mean, you need to be discerning, and it helps to know the people involved. In the former times when they had small towns, you know, people knew who the beggars were, and it was easier to judge these matters. Today we live in these mega cities, most of us, and we also have a welfare state. So I would say you need to be discerning about it, yes. You know, it's, it's funny you tell that story. There's a, uh, an evangelist, I don't know if you've met him or not, his name is John Pridmore from England, who uh, was a former gangster uh, deep into the syndicate in, uh, in London and had a radical conversion experience, and he's, part of a, he's a lay member of a religious community there in Ireland now. And they made, he tells the story, they made a bunch of, you know, hundreds of ham sandwiches and went out to the destitute part of the city where people were largely leaving, uh, living on the streets. And uh, he approached one gentleman and offered him the sandwich. And the gentleman asked him what it was. And he said, it's a ham sandwich. And he said, no, thank you. And, and John Pridmore said, I got so indignant because here's this man who has no means whatsoever, and he's turning down the ham sandwich, and he kind of gave him a little trouble over it, and and the gentleman just looked back at him and said, just because I'm poor, it doesn't mean I like ham sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do need to be discerning, that's for sure. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, <clears throat> 833-288-3986. All right, what's the difference, Anne wants to know, between discipline, doctrine, and dogma, and can doctrine ever change? Oh, okay. Um, dis- a, a discipline is uh, basically something the church requires you to do. So celibacy, for example, is a discipline. It's a very laudable discipline. It's a time memorial discipline, but it's not a doctrine and it's not a dogma. Uh, it could change if the church wished to change it. On the other hand, we think our Lord generally wanted clergy, uh, well, I, better to say in history, not to have relations with a woman because of the all-encompassing character of the priest when he consecrates. So much so that when the Eastern Church permitted people, they were allowed to be married, but they weren't allowed to have sex after they became ordained. Um, so when the Eastern Church changed this, they made this requirement that the day after you had sex with your wife, you couldn't say the Eucharist. So that's a discipline. A doctrine is what we've always taught, but hasn't perhaps raised to the level of solemn definition. So people could still argue about it, perhaps, 
And the Immaculate Conception was a doctrine before it was defined by the Pope. But if something is defined by a council or put in a creed or defined by a Pope, then it rises to the level of dogma. And to even dispute this is considered to be heretical. Doctrine theologians argue about, you know, their different opinions about some things, not everything, but some things that haven't been decided totally yet. So uh, they used to grade, grade these things and put them in um, very specific categories in books like Ludwig Gott's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma in the 19th century. Uh, we're not quite as specific as that anymore, but uh, that's the difference. One is defined. You can't argue about it. The other is uh, generally taught, but there could still be discussion about it. The other is a practice which the church does, but is not necessarily is not necessarily uh, instituted by Christ in the sense that there couldn't be it. Next up is Stephanie in the great state of California listening to us on Sirius XM Channel 130. Stephanie, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hello. Um, I have a little bit of a complicated question. Uh, I am new, new to the faith uh, about two years since I completed RCIA, and uh, by, the grace of, by the grace of God, my children are adults and are now looking at convert you know converting as well um surprised so my youngest daughter uh was in the military has some mental health issues since and long story short married three times two children divorced all the way across the board <laughs> so never married in the church um she's asking me well you know marriages and i i had no answer i don't know what she's going to have, because she now wants to have a husband in the, in the faith. You know, she has ideas of where she wants to go with it, and I was like, I don't know what to tell her. Um, were these people ever baptized in a Protestant sect? Or? Not that I'm aware of. My daughter, my children, uh, my only my two oldest were baptized, my two youngest were not. If she's not been baptized, it's very simple. We do recognize marriage between non-baptized people if they're free to marry. In other words, they've never been married before as marriage, but not Christian marriage, because obviously Christ wasn't involved in it. If she was baptized, it is a complicated question. Um, and they were married before a justice of the peace, for example, in a sect that recognized that marriage. Then she has to get a dispensation from that, uh, an annulment, really. Now, the other one, she doesn't. She needs also some kind of annulment, but it's very easy to get. Uh, the third case would be if a person, uh, well, you're saying this person is entering the faith and wants to know if they can marry another. Yes, provided they get, if they were baptized, they get an annulment from those marriages. And, uh, of course, it would only be the first marriage. It would be a difficulty. And because of the other was we don't agree on marriages and because we don't recognize divorce. And if it were a natural marriage, which is people who are not baptized, then she needs to get a permission also. But it's very, very easy to get. 
And Father, I'm sure that that whoever is the coordinator of the RCIA program there, along with the pastor at the parish, can walk the folks through these steps, right? That's right. Yes, or they could go see the priest. This is job after all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Stephanie. We appreciate it. By seeing the priest, they could ask the RCIA coordinator. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Plenty of time for your phone calls on a Thursday edition of EWTN's Open Line with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls. Matthew is watching us on YouTube, and he wants to know, why do we say 10 Hail Marys per mystery? Why not 1, 3, or 7? Well, the development of the rosary is, you know, shrouded in mist, no exactly sure how it developed. However, it's been called Our Lady's Psalter, and in the Middle Ages, it has some connection to the Psalter. So the people used to memorize the 150 Psalms, which of course is a daunting task, and instead they began to substitute the Hail Mary, and in the Middle Ages, they only did the first part, apart from Scripture, and Pius V added the second part of the Battle of Lepanto, so uh, the hundred, the, the ten Hail Marys would come from the idea that you have three, you know, sets of mysteries with 150, which make 150, so 50 each, and it's easy to divide that into ten. So that's my answer, but the, again, the development is shrouded in mystery. Yeah. Back to the phones we go. Shannon is a first-time caller in New Orleans, Louisiana, listening on the Almighty's 690 uh, Catholic Community Radio. Shannon, you are on with Father Brian. Hi. Um, my friend um, is getting married, and she and her husband, her future husband are talking about getting a prenuptial agreement. And I think that I had remembered hearing somewhere that that would make their Catholic marriage invalid. Is that accurate? Only if the prenuptial agreement involves things like not having children. In other words, if you're denying either the indissolubility or the either the procreation or unitive intent. But if the prenuptial agreement were just about the division of property, for instance, or money, that's a civil effect, and the couple can do anything they want about that. It's only if it affects the consent to the two principal things, which is unity and procreation. So we should make a prenuptial agreement, we'll never have children. That would definitely make the marriage invalid. Does that help, Shannon? It does. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We're going to take a shot here and see if uh, our friend Donna is ready, driving through the great state of Indiana. Donna, are you with us? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Absolutely. What's your question today? Okay, so my husband and I were married 
soon to be 45 years ago. We um, were married in the church. I'm a lifelong Catholic. He is not. He has never been baptized. And I just wanted to make sure that our marriage was okay. We did not have a mass, but we were married in the church. No, your marriage is fine. It's just that it's not a sacramental marriage. And, and the reason is because he isn't baptized. You know, there has to be two baptized parties to be a sacramental marriage. But your marriage is uh, certainly valid, and it's certainly for life. So don't worry about that. Does that put your mind at rest, Donna? Yeah. If he were going to be baptized, then should we have a Mass then, or would that not be necessary? Uh, I'm not sure of the answer to that because I haven't done it in a long time. But my impression is that when he became baptized— then the marriage vows would be elevated to, to a sacramental nature. However, that might not be the case. I'd have to look up those questions in canon law. Yeah, I yeah. think you're correct on that. I'm not entirely sure myself. But even if that's not the case, they could very easily at that point when he was baptized have their marriage convalidated in the church. Yes, that's for, that's for sure. But and that can be done say, with or without a Mass. It doesn't have to be done in the context no, of the Mass. No, no. Uh, it can even be done just in the chancery office, really. How's you that, know? Donna? But, uh, That's perfect. Thank, thank you, you so much. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Bob is in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, he is listening to us today via Sirius XM Channel 130. Bob, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Brian. Hi, Father Brian. Hi. Uh, my, my question is, um, when the Israelites um, rebelled against uh, Moses and God in the desert, and uh, he said that uh, they would all die in the desert, and he swore that none of them would enter into his peace. I mean, it sounds like, you know, they probably didn't make it through the pearly gates, and I'm just wondering if there's ever been any answer on that? Uh, oh, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't think I would take it that far. Um, the, the Lord was talking about them physically entering the promised land because they hadn't uh, believed him, basically. But certainly Moses interceded for them, if you remember, and he basically forgave them. But then he said, no, since you... Since you held us in contempt, basically, and me in contempt, you will not live to see the promised land. So it would not have been them. It would have been their children that went into the promised land. But I don't think I'd take it as far as applying it to the afterlife. That's something different. that cleared up, Bob? Um, sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Sure. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN, and I think we have we have. There's plenty of evidence uh, that we could certainly uh, feel confident in the final disposition of the souls of some of those patriarchs. Yeah, uh, especially when they appear in the Gospels, huh? Oh yeah. Well, but those weren't the people that it was their children in the Promised Land. And remember, the patriarchal system wasn't set up till after they went there. So uh, the judges and the whole thing 
uh, was after they swore by the covenant of what's called the Amphictyony with Joshua. The Amphictyon is a huge stone that represents loyalty and firmness and contract and all this business. And uh, so it was after that they all swore, after they come into the promised land, that the system of the judges and the patriarchs were established. Next stop is the great state of Virginia. Christy is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Christy, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Oh, thank you. Uh, good afternoon, Father Mullady. I'm Christy. So my question is, my sister's husband, my brother-in-law, passed away two years and a half ago. Uh, his remains were cremated, but my sister is still keeping his remains at her home. Now, my sister is Catholic, cradle Catholic. He is Lutheran. So what is the rule on burying the remains of the cre- uh, cremated, uh, cre- yeah, cremated remains, Father? Well, well, his remains should not be at home. They should be in a, a suitable place, which is either the um, mausoleum or, or buried. They shouldn't be at home. No, because it's, they're open to disrespect very much that they're kept in the house. So it's necessary to have respect for the dead body because it was in that body that the person lived whatever their moral life was as a, as a rational being. Right. Uh, next up is Angie. She is another first time caller. Uh, in Lancaster, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Angie, you're on with Father Brian. Hi. Hi. Uh, I had a question. I've been praying the prayer for the dying special yes. soul. And the one part in there, it says, If it should please my majesty to send me a suffering this day in exchange for the grace I ask for this soul. Um I kind of question at, throughout my day, like if I have something that comes up, like maybe I get a headache. Should I not be taking like an aspirin for my headache? Or, um, I mean, just like, even like, okay, my sock, you know, gets, uh, falls off you know, my heels. Is that a suffering? I should just let that happen? Or, or I'm not sure. No. <laughs> no. I mean, my goodness, no, God gave you aspirin because he wanted you to experience relief from your headache so you could pray better. And I didn't get the second one, socks or something. Just what like if, you, if, you're, uh, if there's something uncomfortable, like your socks, you know, gets down in your heel. Oh, no, and... that has nothing to do with spirituality. No, put your sock on right, okay? <laughs> it's it's it nothing to do with it whatsoever, all right? Does Sorry. That, does that give you some peace of mind, Angie? Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. My my feet are much more comfortable now. Just knowing that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we're glad to hear it. God I'm, bless I'm you, Angie. Happy. Thanks so much for uh, thank you so much for the phone yes. call. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Um, okay, correct something quickly. Go right ahead. Uh, the patriarchs of course, the 12 tribes of Israel had their ancestors with going into Egypt and coming out. But when they went into the Promised Land, it was the, their descendants that became uh, the leaders of the 12 tribes. Because obviously, the original 12 
uh, Jacob's, you know, children and all that were all gone by then. So, yeah. Okay, so, so you're 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 a, a professed religious, religious, right? I am. And did you lead a perfect life as a boy and a young man leading up to that uh, profession of religious life? Oh, no, ask my mother. <laughs> well, I've got a question here from Lisa. She is in the Republic of Texas listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Lisa, you are on with the less-than-perfect Father Brian Mullady. Hello. Well, that comfort, comforts me greatly to know that you're, um, you were born of the flesh as well. I um, would like to know, I'm, I am your lady at the well, the unnamed lady at the well, so I do not live with anyone and have been celibate for 12 years. I'd like to know, um, with the, this has been on my heart quite some time, and I do a lot of work in the area that a nun would. Is a, is a woman allowed to become a nun with the history and past like that? Uh, well, it depends on the community. Normally, sisters do not accept other sisters who had a checkered past just because the pressures are difficult to live, uh, especially with sexually sex, uh, checkered past. Um, there were communities though. Uh, there was a community in France of Dominican sisters, the Bethany, and they all, all only accepted prostitutes for foreign prostitutes. So they were, uh, this was in the 19th century. A Dominican founded these people. And it was people who'd done that as young people and wanted to change. So the difficulty is, can the person live the life and the pressure involved? But uh, if it's just a matter of being mischievous or, I mean, I'm, my dad used to say about me, the more you beat that kid, the more stubborn he becomes, was one thing he used to say. <laughs> and when they congratulate my mother on me being a priest, she said, that wasn't my fault. It's his fault. <laughs> like this. And believe me, my community that I live with would not consider me by any stretch of the imagination perfect. Because <laughs> they always have plenty to say about my imperfections. Okay. But it depends on the imperfection. If it's a sexual problem, it's something that you have to be sure the person can deal with what chastity involves as a vow because people become can become quite neurotic that haven't experienced the resolution of this issue beforehand. But, you know, in the Middle Ages, there were lots of people who joined religious communities. For example, if you've ever seen the British detective series, Brother Cadfile, you may remember he was a, a crusader and he shed blood a lot. And though he, in the end of his life, decided to give himself to religion, they didn't feel it was possible to be a priest because of all the blood he'd actually shed. And then, of course, in the detective series, he'd also had a common law wife back in Damascus or wherever it was. So um, in that sense, they allow you sometimes to come in, but not to do the fullness of the life. So that's my answer. Now, Brian, let me, Father Brian, let me ask you this. I think Lisa said she had been uh, chased for 12 years at this point. That would probably be somewhat of a testimony to a prospective community. Yes, huh? you're right. You're right. But only the person knows that. Yeah. And they need to discern honestly with the community um, because uh, there's no hard and fast rules for any of this. 
Uh, normally, as I say, though, a lot of sisters will not accept people, even, for example, over the age of 30, just because they're too formed in some other life. Yeah. But some will. So you have to discern uh, and be honest with yourself and with them, and they with you, about what they feel are the abilities. It's not a moral problem. It's more a problem of the formation of the emotional structure in one way when too much pressure is put on it in another way to change if, it's, if it won't cause more difficulties. And one great thing you've done today, Lisa, is calling the program. You'll have a whole bunch of folks that will be praying for you as you continue along your journey. Next up Amen. is Judy in Lafayette, Louisiana. She's listening on Christ Our King Radio. Judy, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you. My question is, does the Catholic Church teach that Joseph was um, assumed into heaven, or did he die and was buried? Well, the Catholic Church only defines that two people are in heaven with their bodies, and that's Jesus and Mary. Uh, I'm not totally up on everything about Josephology. I'm sure there are some people that think he might have been assumed into heaven, but I think that's more connected to the assumption of Mary into heaven, and it's certainly not uh, a commonly taught doctrine or one you can find any scriptural authority for, whereas the uh, assumption of Mary is the woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, the crown of 12 stars in the book of Revelation. So uh, I, I only know up to a certain point what we actually teach. There may be some speculation by some people about the other, but I don't think that's in any sense something you have to believe as a Catholic. Would a lack of relics maybe spurn some of that speculation? It could. It could. But uh, we have to have some evidence in Scripture that such a thing occurred. And also, uh, they don't talk about Joseph's tomb, and they don't talk about— There's a his, whole lot of stuff they don't talk about about St. Joseph in Scripture. <laughs> right, right. But uh, Mary, on the other hand, there was a long tradition of her assumption into heaven that was finally— codified really by John Damascene in the 7th century. And it was basically that there was a tomb and the apostles were transported miraculously to mourn at the tomb. And then, of course, Thomas was late, as usual, and he wanted to see the body. And when they opened the tomb, they discovered there was no body and they just assumed or concluded that uh, uh, Christ had taken her to heaven in her body too. So there's a tradition, a whole tradition about that, but not, I don't think. Yeah. Thanks, Judy. We appreciate the call. Next stop is Grand Rapids, Michigan. Michael is listening on Holy Family Radio. Michael, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hello. My question is, if two Catholics were married by a priest, however, not in a church, and they found out a couple of weeks later that priest was still in a 10-year sexual relationship with his girlfriend. Was that a valid marriage? Uh, how would they not be married in the church? Oh, because uh, the guy was in the military. They got married in a room, but it wasn't in a chapel or anything like that. It was a room the 
priest had picked out. Oh, I see, because they were on, on uh, deployment or something. Yeah, okay, so there. Um, the thing has nothing to do with the priest having relations with somebody else. Uh, it has to do with whether he has the ability at the time to perform the marriage. And that's uh, regardless of his own personal moral life. So, uh, as I would say, in the context of the military ordinariat, that's a very unusual uh, circumstance. And in that case, uh, he probably has the permission to have the marriage outside of church. Normally, you have to get permission to do that in an ordinary marriage. And so they probably would be married, yes. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Next up is Tom in St. Charles, Missouri, another first time caller listening on Covenant Radio. Tom, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you. Good afternoon, Father. My question is: Can a deacon bless candles, and if so, is it as powerful as a priest blessing them? See, uh, of course, he can bless candles. But uh, as to its power, if a blessing's a blessing, right? I mean, if it's a blessing, it's blessed. If it's not, it's not. Um, uh, it's not the normal task of the deacon to bless candles. However, uh, he could bless other things, and I believe he can bless even religious objects. But I must say I'm not up on that totally either. Uh, these are very esoteric questions, and uh, – yeah, uh, <laughs> he can bless it. Awesome. <laughs> power, I really, you'll have to ask God about that. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is Joe in San Diego, California, also listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joe, you're on with Father Brian Malady. Oh, thank you. Good afternoon, Father. So my question would be, I have we get we have some friends here and close to our town, and my son's best friend is getting married. Um, they've been living together for the past ten years, so they invited us to go to Washington State to their wedding. But it's not a it's not any it, it's not a religious wedding whatsoever. I mean they they they're not practicing of any religion. And so I, I myself just started within the last two years getting close to Jesus. And so I say, am I being a, a dud by not wanting to participate in that? Uh, well, are they Catholic or what? Oh, no, nothing. No. no. Oh, okay. Well, I wouldn't go. <laughs> I don't think you're being a dud at all. Um, the, yeah. We know we've known Cameron since he was a kid. Well, you ask me. That's my opinion. All right. If you really want to bless that kind of situation, uh, go right ahead. But you remember, your presence basically says you agree with this. If you're trying to get close to Christ, I think you need to emphasize or stand for Christian marriage or whatever. And finally, today we'll talk to Mary Ann. She's in Corpus Christi, Texas, listening at EWTN.com. Uh, Mary Ann, you're on with Father Brian. Good Hello. afternoon. Thank you, for, but thank you for taking my call. Just a quick follow-up to the lady that had called 
earlier regarding um, entering a religious order after, you know, a life that she's considered questionable. There wasn't mention of the possibility of entering tertiary orders, and I was just uh, wondering about that for the laity. Yeah, well, of course you could join the uh, lay branch of whatever community it is. My impression was she was asking if she could become a sister in a convent. And uh, if, if all she wants to do is be associated with the works of the community, she can always be a member of like the secular branch of that community. So we have uh, Dominican tertiaries, for example. Franciscans have theirs. The Carmelites have theirs. A bunch of orders have theirs. And uh, you don't make vows. You just make promises. And you don't have to live in a convent with other people. And you certainly don't make vows of chastity uh, where you're a virgin, you know, virginal life or whatever. Uh, one more here. We've got Andrew in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio, Father. And he wants to know if it's bad to use magic. All right. Well, it depends on what you mean by magic. If you mean prestidigitation, which is the idea that they do in magic shows where the hand is quicker than the eye, uh, no, that's fine. There's no moral significance to that. But if by magic you mean using demonic forces in order to accomplish some goal, which would be the case with witchcraft, Ouija boards, tarot cards, yes, that's bad. It's against the first commandment. It's superstitious practices. It's seeing knowledge of demons when they don't have the knowledge. I remember when I was in formation, oddly enough, many years ago, you know, the 60s were a very freewheeling time. And some of the brothers played with tarot cards, which made me very uncomfortable. And so they used to laugh at me. Well, anyway, one day the tarot cards disappeared. So I said, well, what, what happened to the tarot cards? Oh, we asked them if there was an evil force behind these cards, and they answered yes. <laughs> we asked them if it was Satan, and they answered yes. So the cards went in the trash, and I said, well, I think the tarot cards are more intelligent than some of the Dominican brothers. <laughs> Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Oh, my God, God bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Mullady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Jeff Burson, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless.